What a blessing uh, we have in this church. Every Sunday morning, we hear tremendous preaching from the Word, and I'm so enjoying this series our pastor's been giving us in the book of Matthew, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. I, I love the way we have gospel-centered, biblical exposition every single Sunday. Do you know what a blessing that is? I, I've been in the ministry now for almost 50 years, and I have never been under a pastor on a regular basis that's done more in terms of encouraging my spirit and giving me something from the Word every Sunday. I think we need to really be thankful for our pastor, and it's a privilege that he's given me today to continue his series <clears throat> on the Sermon on the Mount, and I assume many of you have been involved in this process of listening to each of the sermons as we've moved through. There have been two very important theme verses that really come into play into what we're going to say today as we get to chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. A very profound and shocking statement in that context, for sure. And then, as we saw at the end of the chapter 5 last week, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as you he your heavenly Father is perfect. This, again, would have been a shocking thing for a common person to hear in the context of looking up to a certain uh, cast of, of uh, spiritual leaders that were so open and uh, expressive of their spirituality, and it was looked at as the standard. Jesus declares that the true members of the kingdom of heaven will be more righteous than the Pharisees. Their lives will testify to the nature and character of their heavenly Father in the way they live in accordance with His kingdom's values, which weren't always being really proclaimed and propagated and demonstrated by those that claimed to be religious leaders at that time. So the Sermon on the Mount articulates the specifics of that lifestyle in relationship to God and towards other people in that context and in ours. I think Jesus is showing that there is a different kind of righteousness than that which was being promoted and manifested by the Pharisees. Whereas they emphasized the letter of the law, Jesus emphasized the character of the person who claimed to be related to the Heavenly Father. Last week we learned from chapter 5, and I'm going to repeat the three points that Pastor gave us, that like our Heavenly Father, we should be trustworthy in speech, gracious in conflict, and loving even when it is hard. A very high standard and very character-oriented, isn't it? So much more than a legalistic outworking of some kind of religious system. It's all about heart. It's all about character. It's all about genuine, Christ-like, godly concern for people and how we impact them with our lives and our words. This morning we wanted to get into chapter 6 where Jesus raises the issues of our motives and our purposes in the outward expression of our faith. The character that we have will manifest itself in the way we live and the way we practice our faith. So in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, where we want to zero in today, we see that the Lord touches on the topic of money. This can be a touchy topic, for sure, and giving. And I'll say this, that Jesus, in his teaching, put a lot of emphasis on that. Um, someone, I think, has said that there's more about money in Christ's teaching than there is about heaven. The fact is 
the way we use our money, the way we express that, our resources, and the way we use those resources speak a lot about who we are and how we re reflect the character of God. I could have given a stewardship sermon today. We're not trying to build a new building. Obviously, obviously there's always projects that we can give to. But like in all of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really zeroes on, in on what is the more core basic issues and why we do what we do as we express our faith publicly. And that's where Jesus goes with this. And so I'm going to try to reflect what Jesus is saying. I'm not going to give you a challenge to give to some project today. I'm not going to try to get you to give more money to God's work. That's always appropriate. But the issue is really what's going on in here in our giving, isn't it? Ultimately, that's what Jesus, I think, is saying to us today. Context-wise, we need to understand that the pillars of the practice of Judaism in those days included three expressions of one's commitment to uh, Yahweh. They included almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And those three issues Jesus will touch in this chapter 6. And he will say some very common things about each one, but we want to zero in again on the first one where he talks about almsgiving. Jesus is going to warn his listeners that the Pharisaic practice of these religious actions were actually hypocritical. I suppose the teaching of this whole chapter, particularly the first 18 verses, but really the whole chapter, would be found in what Jesus said in verse 1. Look at what he says in Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In each reflection on these three actions in the next 18 verses, almsgiving, prayer, and, and uh, the third one is fasting, in each case, he will use the word hypocrite in reference to the Pharisees and the way they practice these religious activities. I think we need to say something about this word hypocrite. It actually is a transliteration almost from the Greek word hypocrites. This word literally was interpreter from underneath. The context is the ancient Greek drama. When an actor, he would put on a mask and he would speak from literally underneath the mask. And so this idea of the interpreter from underneath. He was speaking, but he was underneath this mask. <clears throat> you see, a, a hypocrite pretends to be one thing, but all the time he's really something altogether different. And Jesus is condemning the Pharisees while positively teaching his followers that in these areas of manifesting your religious life, you must not be a hypocrite like those you look up to in the way that they practice their faith. So the main idea of what I want to say today is this. Our motive in giving and in all practices publicly of our faith is the most important thing and is the essential element in manifesting true righteousness as the members of God's kingdom, and receiving reward in heaven. 
You see, unhypocritical, transparent Christianity is what truly brings glory to God and brings his approval now and in the future. That's a challenge. I think we all need to think about our motives. Sometimes we put, like the Pharisees apparently did, an overemphasis on the way we act as opposed to who we are. Our actions must flow out of the character that we have in terms of what God has done in changing us and making us like himself. Let's look at verses 2 to 4 here. The hypocritical Pharisees were really a negative example. They were the very opposite of what the Lord is promoting in his followers. And he puts it this way. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Christ's teaching is so profound, isn't it? Let's unpack it a little bit here. The issue is not whether we should give. That's assumed. Rather, the issue is why we give and how we give. That's what God is looking at. Really, the issue isn't percentages here. The issue is heart. And like our Father, who's a generous giver, if we are like our Father, we're going to be generous givers. We're going to be compassionate givers. We're going to be motivated to give because we know it's a way to bring glory to God and to reflect his character. You see, in those days, the practice of almsgiving had become a means of trumpeting one's piety by making a very big public display when giving to another a needy person, and that's apparently what went on. We, I wasn't able to find any examples in the ancient literature of literally using trumpets. However, apparently in the temple treasury, there were 13 trumpet-shaped medical receptacles that people would put their money in. And apparently, sometimes these wealthy, rich people would take the coins and one at a time drop them down those trumpets and ching, 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 ching. They would make a huge display just by doing that of how much they were giving as a way, again, of manifesting their spirituality or religiosity at that point. It reminds me of what Jesus talked about when he told the story, apparently a very true story, of what we call the widow's might. It's found in Mark chapter 12. It tells about how Jesus was, was sitting there looking at the temple treasury, and he observed how the rich people were making a big presentation of the amount that they were giving. And then there was this lowly, poor lady who apparently almost silently put in two copper coins that were worth almost nothing, but it was everything she had, and the Lord commended her for that. How did he know, and how did people know that the rich were giving a lot? Again, that more public display would have been in evidence, and Jesus himself was watching what was going on and made a profound point of the sacrifice of that woman and how God took note, not of her amount so much, but of the commitment she was making in what she did give. 
You see, they were seeking men's approval, men's appreciation, men's applause. They were seeking honor of people to get to the place where people would say, aha, what a spiritual person. Look at how much money they're giving to God. They wanted to be known as righteous spiritual people, but in fact, Jesus says, the way they gave and the reason they gave showed that they were truly hypocrites and really not the spiritual people they were trying to parade themselves as. Their reward had already been received. They got what they sought, but sadly, they did not receive reward in heaven, and they did not get the accommodation of the God they're supposedly serving through that action. You see, a true member of God's kingdom will be different, Jesus is saying. Why he gives, why she gives, how she gives will be different. I was reading one writer who kind of put it in a more contemporary context, and I like this. He said, whenever you give to the poor, don't make a show of it, Jesus says. In essence, when you give, don't shout out, look at me. Don't announce your righteousness on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. Chat. Don't call a press conference. In fact, he adds in verse 3, he goes on to say, when you give to the poor, don't even look at yourself. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't pridefully celebrate your own personal acts of righteousness. A true disciple must avoid seeking to be a spiritual celebrity in the eyes of others. That humble widow was a good example. She was doing this very privately because she was embarrassed because she could only give two coins. And yet the Lord noted she was giving everything that she had in great trust in the Heavenly Father whom she was worshiping in that gift. I've lived in Africa a long time, as many of you know. And Lord willing, we're going to go back to Liberia early next year. But for 10 years, we lived in Nigeria, and I observed something in Nigerian context and culture. They would have what were called launchings. When someone was going to build a building or start a, a, a new either business or even ministry, they would make a, put out invitations, and particularly to more wealthy people, particularly politicians who tend to be quite wealthy in Africa, in Nigeria in particular. And these people would come, and the idea was that they would be giving large gifts. And they would literally bring piles of cash in bags. And as part of the excitement and the celebration, that money would go up to the person who was the MC, and they would, they would be counted, and then they would make a huge, big deal of how wonderful this person was because of the huge gift they gave, and it became a very sad, in often cases sad, manifestation of the very thing that I see Jesus condemning in the Pharisees here. Now, I love African culture, and I understand in African culture, as in most cultures of the world, receiving honor is a very important value, but how quickly it can become a basis for hypocrisy, because many times these were Christian events starting Christian ministries or building churches or whatever. And it became a, a, a focus 
on the people involved as opposed to the glorious Lord that this gift was going to give and result in something that he could be used and be glorified by. You see, a prideful desire for honor and glory and applause is really in all of us, and we need to recognize it. And when we're practicing our faith, whatever it is, not just in giving, in other things, there could be this motivation that we need to address and speak very specifically to in our own hearts and lives. Today we're going to have the Lord's Supper. It's very important that we have honesty and transparency before the Lord in doing this public means, privately, yes, but a public demonstration of our relationship to the Lord. How important it is in all things that we are not driven by a legalistic desire to be somehow impressing others. In the matter of evangelism, um, I believe in personal evangelism, but there are some situations where people are feeling guilty if they don't get involved in some kind of program of evangelism, and in order to keep maintain some kind of an, a, 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 um, a reputation, that can be a motivation. Now, God uses his word, and the gospel brings people to Christ, and I believe in the discipline it takes to go out and do that. But again, doing it because we love the Lord and because he's told us to do it, not because somebody else expects us to do it. That's the challenge, isn't it? David, uh, Paul David Tripp, in his devotional book, he says this, pride chooses to live more for self-glory than the glory of God. We're all glory confused. We're all, in some way, glory thieves. How in our lives are we glory thieves, doing things that we think somehow are bringing glory to God, but in fact, our real motivation is to bring glory to ourselves. May God convict us and show us those areas where we need to repent of that and change our ways. It's interesting, back in chapter 5, verse 16, um, this is what Jesus said as we looked at it in a previous uh, Sunday sermon. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and here it is, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's a way to serve the Lord publicly that doesn't bring glory to us, but in fact brings glory to God. It's something like what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He said, keep your contact, conduct among the Gentiles honorably so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. We want our lives to speak the gospel. And when the gospel is proclaimed in what we say and do, some people will be turned off. Some people will reject us, in fact, hate us. But may it never be that they can say those guys were really hypocrites because what they said is not what they did. And when the day of judgment comes, they cannot say, but that Christian led me astray because he was really a hypocrite in what he did. Now, we'll be called hypocrites. I understand that. But we need to know our heart and our lives need to reflect our true, genuine devotion to the Lord. And he will be glorified, ultimately. That's what I think Peter's telling us. You see, as members of God's kingdom and children of God, our ultimate purpose and goal in life is to glorify our Heavenly Father in all that we do. 
Giving generously to meet the needs of others is one means of doing that. As recipients of God's generous gifts, it is our privilege to mimic him as compassionate and generous givers to others. As we worship and seek to please and glorify the source of all good gifts, we are motivated to bless others by sharing, not hoarding those resources he has given and entrusted to us as stewards. There are lots of examples I can give from our lives as those who have been supported missionaries for years of God's people giving to us generously many, many stories. Uh, we once got a gift from a church that didn't even know who we were. I, I don't know even how they found out. And a totally anonymous gift from a church that we, we didn't even um, know. But I think of our own church and I wrote Nikki Armand, who's our missionary there in Chad, I said, do you have some illustrations of people in your recent experience who have given generously to you? And uh, she immediately came back and talked about our VBS kids. A year ago during VBS when we had it on campus, she was one of the main speakers and all the kids got to hear her talk about Chad. And they were so excited about Chad. And the opportunity was given to our children to give money to help the people of Chad and help Nikki get to Chad. And they came in with coins galore. I don't know who counted it all, but about $1,000 came and those little kids got so excited. Children are often the best examples, aren't they, of the character that really reflects our Heavenly Father. They get excited and they find everything they can to give to God because they believe that this is something they should do and they want to do and they love to do and they do it cheerfully and they do it sacrificially. But I want to tell a story about one of the givers that has been so important in our lives. I'll just call him Joe. His name is Joe. I preached on this passage of Matthew 6 in June of 1973, believe it or not. I was a new pastor, assistant pastor in Indiana, just out of seminary. And I preached on this passage, and Joe was a new Christian. And we started to get to know each other. We would go out to breakfast, uh, the group of men would go to breakfast once a week. And Joe really took this to heart. And over the course of all these years, mind you, 73 to 2020, realize how many years that is, 47 years, he has been probably, I'm sure he is, the most generous giver we have had in all of our ministry all these years. When we left and went to, to do our doctoral studies, our daughter Amber was born that fall when we started. We had hardly anything. We had just a few dollars to get started. And we needed, because in those days, diapers were the way you went, we needed a washer and dryer. Joe provided a washer and dryer so that my wife could do the diapers. When we finished that doctoral studies, we were going back to the place where we had been, but we had no place to live. Joe bought a duplex so that we would have a place to live. We had nothing. He provided our housing. This is what Joe does every single year to this day. Every year throughout the year, he puts a portion of his salary into a special account. He collects all of the requests for gifts of people 
whom he knows, including us, and he puts it in a pile. And at the end of the year, he pulls out those letters and he gives from that account that he has collected throughout the year. He gives very, very generously. And he set apart that money for that purpose and he enjoys it. I really believe, and I've told Joe this, I think you're taking seriously this passage is the basis upon which you discovered you have the gift of giving, because I really believe he does. What are we doing? How are we thinking that we can, in fact, glorify God by the use of the resources he has made available to us? All of us have that opportunity. But the question is, why do we give? Whom do we really want to please? Who are we looking for the approval of? Are we like our Heavenly Father, compassionate, generous? What is it that drives all that we do? We know, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that everything we do, it should bring glory to God. The Lord gives us opportunity to do that. But we have to ask ourselves, is our motive truly to glorify Him? Is it to hear His well done at the end of our lives when we arrive in heaven. You know, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he gives a challenge to the church in Corinth and, in fact, commends the churches of Macedonia for their generous giving. And we read from the first part of chapter 8 in our early reading in the service this morning. But I want to read what he says in chapter 9 because it reinforces, I think, everything that the Lord Jesus is saying as we've looked at it here in Matthew chapter 6. Here's what Paul said. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely and has given, has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in every way to be gracious in every way, which, the, which, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And then back in chapter 8, verse 9, this is what Paul said as we read it this morning. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We are rich today because Jesus gave all for us. 
We are now challenged as his children who've received the gift of salvation and all that goes along with that, including all of the resources that he's given us, to bring glory to him by generously giving back to him, sacrificing ourselves first of all, Matthew 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And when he gets all of us, he gets our resources and our money. The result is his glory. The result is our approval before God because our heart and our lives reflected the character of the God we serve. We're now going to enter into the Lord's Supper and we're going to thank the Lord for the sacrificial gift that makes our giving and our lives and our salvation a reality.